Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the children of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So right now, we're uh, continuing going through uh, our study in the book of Revelation, and we're in this section right now uh, where Jesus is addressing seven different churches, seven different churches. And as we've mentioned before, there's a lot of uh, symbology, a lot of metaphor uh, throughout the book of Revelation, and the number seven uh, uh, usually means uh, perfection or wholeness. And so by writing and addressing seven different churches and seven different situations in the first century, it's a way of Jesus addressing really the whole entirety of the church throughout the ages. Basically, what that means is for us is that as we learn these different principles and insights uh, uh, given to each of these churches from Jesus himself, there's something for us to pick up on. There's something for us to learn uh, for our church family, and even for us as individual Christians. And so today we're going to look at his letter to the church in Philadelphia. Uh, now, before some of you think like, oh, I love Philadelphia, right? Go Eagles! Like, we're not, we're not talking about the home of the Phillies and the Eagles. We're not talking about where the Fresh Prince was born and raised, we're talking about the original Philadelphia, a first century city in the ancient Near East that was about a day's travel south of Sardis, which is where the church we looked at last week was. And when Jesus addresses this Philly, this Philadelphia, we almost get this sense that like, man, he really enjoyed addressing and, and writing to this church. Because if you've been paying attention, like over the last few weeks, as we've as we've heard Jesus's words, that as he addressed each of the churches, um, he's got uh, some some good things to say about a lot of them, but mostly he's got some things to correct them on. Right? He says, like, "Hey, you were you've been faithful, you've been good at these things, but hey, look, if you don't if you don't keep watch on these other areas, if you don't." If you don't correct these other areas that, that, that need to change, what you're going to find is you don't really belong to me. Your relationship with me is going to suffer. 
you'll be found to be unfaithful. And so last week, we actually looked at the letter to the church in Sardis, and that letter was also different in that Jesus actually had nothing good to say to that church, right? There was no point where Jesus said, like, hey, you've got these great things going on. He just straight up goes right into correcting them. He says, look, you guys have the reputation of being alive. You're big. You've got a good thing going. You're attracting people. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're rotting on the inside. You look impressive on the outside, he told the church in Sardis, but you're spiritually dead on the inside. And now to the church in Philadelphia, we're going to see that he says to them, I see you. I see you, and I see that your appearance is really not all that impressive. You're small. You have a little bit of power. Hardly any influence. On the outside, you look pretty weak. But then he commends them in their faithfulness, and he says, if you continue in this faithfulness, then I will make you a pillar in my kingdom. And so this church is basically the flip of what we saw last week. This church is outwardly looking weak, but inwardly they are powerful. This church is outwardly weak, but inwardly powerful. And Jesus uses them. He uses the church in Philadelphia as a model for us on what Christian faithfulness looks like. So let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into the text. Father, we thank you for keeping your word, for just wisely preserving it throughout history and making it such that like, even though it was written 2,000 years ago on an entirely different continent, by the power of your spirit, you have something relevant and timely for us today. And I pray, Lord, for those of us, including myself, who might need to be just challenged or comforted by your word. I pray, God, that, that as I preach, that your spirit would be at work and that you would make us look more like Jesus, help us to love him more, worship him better, and truly be a faithful people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's look at the first verse in our text. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Jesus, again, he is dictating this message to the church in Philadelphia uh, uh, through the apostle John. And he says to John, to the angel or to the messenger of the church in Philadelphia, write this. He says, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. And so here, Jesus begins his address to Philadelphia by describing himself as the Holy One, the True One, and the one who has the key of David, who opens and shuts doors. Now, as we've seen in the previous churches, Jesus is always intentional on how he introduces himself to each receptor 
respective church, right? He introduces himself to the church in Smyrna a certain way, to the church in Ephesus a different way, and the way that he addresses himself is always going to be important for what he's about to say. Now, here he says that he is the one who holds the keys of David. The one who holds the keys of David. Now, what does that mean? David, if you know your Old Testament, was the the first great king of Israel. And so when, when people drop David's name in the Bible, we're supposed to think about great kingship. We're supposed to think about dominion, about lordship, about reigning like a king. Now, I say this a lot at, at King's Cross, but it bears repeating because it's so important that whatever your view of Jesus is, it's just not big enough, all right? Whatever view of Jesus you have, you need to know it is not big enough. We want to maintain a big picture of Jesus, all right? One of the reasons is that the smaller your picture of Jesus, the bigger your problems are going to get. Some of us have an overly tamed version of Jesus, right? We, we want a Jesus that doesn't actually bear weight on our existence. A Jesus who can't really have anything to say about how we, we think or, or live. We like eight pounds, six ounce, cuddly newborn infant Jesus like Ricky Bobby. Or we like good communicator Jesus who healed and taught some great things but that's really it, right? Like you don't really have to trust or submit to him. But when you have a bigger, when you have a fuller picture of Jesus, your problems get smaller. Your enemies look more trivial because you start to see everything in the world as underneath his lordship. Everything in the world is underneath his rule, underneath his dominion. And it's worth noting that every time Jesus says something to one of these seven churches, he reminds them not of how he was, but he reveals to them how he is truly today. He reveals to them, not, not, he doesn't just remind them of how he was, he reveals to them how he is after his death, resurrection, and return to heaven. You see, it's important for us to remember as followers of Jesus, if that's how you would describe yourself this morning, that as followers of Jesus, that we're not following somebody who just merely existed in human history. No, the whole point of Christianity, the whole point, we, the reason we, we celebrate Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday every single year is because Jesus is alive. And so Jesus isn't dead. He's alive and he's at work right now. He didn't just come to us in humility in the form of a baby. No, he was raised to triumphant glory. He wasn't just a marginalized peasant from Nazareth. He is currently a ruling, reigning king of kings, lord of lords, the kind of king and the kind of lord who sees all things, 
who knows everything, even the things that you are most embarrassed about that nobody else knows, and he judges perfectly. That's what it means to say he's the king of David. And so he, he addresses himself to this church as the one who holds the keys of David. And that leads us into our first point here. I want us to recognize that Jesus is the reigning king. First thing for us to see in this text this morning is that Jesus is the reigning king. Notice also in verse 7, he is described uh, as the holy one. Right there in verse 7, he says, these words are the words of the Holy One, speaking of himself. Now, it says that King Jesus is the Holy One, which is to say that he is without sin. And that he's altogether just perfect. In 11 out of 10, some people think that the theme of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the theme of it is, is the end of the world. Some think that the theme is, is you got to figure out who the Antichrist is. Or some think that the major theme is about the church. But you know, the main thing, the main theme of Revelation is Christ. Christ and his victory. Because at the center of every church is Christ himself. At the center of every victory we read about in Revelation is Christ himself. The whole book's about him and his victory. And so to say that he is the Holy One is not just to say that he's the greatest person who ever walked this earth, which he is, but it's to say that he exists in an entirely different category, totally unto himself. Nothing compares to him. Nobody compares to him. He's the truly holy one, completely set apart from all creation, but sent into creation to be the perfect holy substitute for sinners like me and like you. And then it says, he's not only the holy one, but the true one. Verse 7 continues. He says, the true one. In other words, <laughs> Jesus only tells the truth. He's the source of all truth. Anything he ever stood for or did confirmed the truth that's already been spoken. Everything he ever spoke or promised will come true to pass. That means that everything good that has ever happened to this church in Philadelphia and everything good that has ever happened, uh, uh, not just to this church, but in and through this church is due to the fact that Jesus has been good on his promises to love that church. It's worth recognizing that that means that if anything good ever happens to this church, to King's Cross Church, if anything good ever happens in our church and through our church's ministry and witness, it's going to be due to the fact that Jesus has been good on his promises. Jesus continues by describing himself as the one who opens doors that no one will shut who shuts and no one opens. Now, what does that mean? It means that Christ is the king who has absolute power 
over the, the affairs of earth, but he also has absolute power over entry into the kingdom of heaven. That's what it means when Jesus says that he opens doors that no one will shut and shuts doors no one will open. Only Jesus has absolute power, not only over all the affairs of earth, but also over entry into the kingdom of heaven. Now, why is that significant? It's because, see, the church in the original Philly needed this reminder. They needed this reminder that the key to the kingdom is one that is not made by men. It's not man-made. It's not determined by the size of a church or by the popularity of the pastor or by human wisdom or majority rule or by how hard you work or how awesome the band is. No, the power of the kingdom, the doors of the kingdom is vested in Christ the king and in him alone. And if we look to the opinions of men, then it might be easier for us to get discouraged. You see, I remember shortly after we first uh, moved back to RSM, uh, my wife and I, we ran into uh, a neighbor of ours uh, at the grocery store. And he had heard from, from his wife that, that a little bit of our story, that, that I had left this secure job uh, for a nonprofit ministry. And that now my pregnant wife and I had moved our toddler back into RSM, into this neighborhood with this vision to plant a different kind of church in the community one that would provide fresh expressions of the ancient faith, focusing on people who either don't know Jesus or assume that they know Jesus, but like don't really live like it. Don't go to church. Don't, don't actually like live that out. And, and he started asking us questions about that, a little bit of our, our, our story and why we would do that. And I'm like getting excited, like, oh man, like uh, he's an older gentleman. And I was like, you know, like I'm getting excited thinking like he, he's, he might be interested in, 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 in joining us uh, and praying for us, maybe just giving to the church. And so I'm getting all excited. And then at one point he goes, I still don't understand why on earth you would do that. I don't understand why we do that. Why don't you just get a job, like a more secure job at just one of these huge churches in town? He's like, there's a ton of them, right? There's a ton of them. I mean, like my heart originally was like, yeah, we, there's a lot of great churches. There's some big churches in town, but we need different kinds of churches of different styles too and different sizes to reach different kinds of people, Right? But when he said that, I was like discouraged. I'm like, man, is, I don't know. Is there something to what he's saying? And sometimes I remember like I would meet pastors for lunch from other churches. And when they find out that like we're, we're planting organically, which is to say that we're, we're planting like starting with a few people and we're going to grow from there rather than taking like 200 people from one church and just, you know, putting them uh, in, an, in, a, in another area like as a campus, uh, which, which in my mind, that's not really planting. That's like repotting a plant, Right. Like, that's not church planting. But sometimes I meet pastors for, for lunch from other churches when, I find, when they find out that that's what we're doing and that we're doing it on a shoestring budget without, like, cool lights and fog machines and stuff like that. Like that. Uh, they, they just look at me like, like, oh, that's cute, right? That's cute. You're trying to, to plant a church. You see, the church in Philadelphia, they were receiving similar kinds of criticism. Of all the churches... 
that Jesus is addressing, this was the smallest one. This is the smallest one. And it was the only one that he described as faithful. Last week, the church of Sardis was the biggest. It was the most popular. It was the most well-known. And Jesus tells them, no, you guys look great on the outside. You're all impressive on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. And look, that's not to say that big is bad, always bad, and that small is always good. There's some faithful big churches that have existed throughout history, and there's some pretty crappy small churches too. It's not about that. What it's, what it's about, the, the, the letter to, to Sardis last week and, and the letter to Philadelphia this week is to totally blow wide open our assumptions of how we view failure and success. You see, the church in Philadelphia, they received similar criticisms. They were small. They had very little influence, very little power. They were seen as unsuccessful according to the standards of the world. But Jesus says, no, look, I'm the one who opens doors and shuts them. And for you, because of your faithfulness, because of my love for you, because of my promises to you, I've opened the door. And I've opened it to you out of love. And now he says in verse 8, he says, I know your works. And as we see, these are faithful works. I know your faithful works. He says, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. See, Jesus is the one who opens. He's the one who knows what, is, what faithfulness looks like and what it doesn't look like. He's the one who opens things. He's the one who opened up the sea so that his people could walk across the Red Sea when they were delivered from Egypt. He's the one that opened up the rock in the desert when they were dying of thirst and hunger. He's the one that opens and tears open the curtain, the veil in the temple, so that the presence of God was no longer uh, uh, just found in a single place, but it was found now in his people throughout the world. And here we see he's the one who opens up the power of the heavens the door of the heavens. And who does he open the heavens for? In this case, he opens it for a church that gets often ignored, a church that's small, unimpressive, weak. And so Jesus is the strong one. He's the holy and true reigning king. But point number two, I want you to see that and realize that King Jesus loves the weak. Point number two, realize that King Jesus loves the weak. He continues in verse eight when he says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I want you to notice and feel the stark contrast between the power of Christ as the one who holds the, kings, the keys of David, as the one who is holy, the one who is true. Notice the stark contrast between the power of Christ and the power of the church in Philadelphia. He says, I know you have but little power. Isn't that amazing? 
Isn't that amazing that in all of his holiness, in all his greatness, in all his bigness, in all his importance, the one who makes angels sing and demons tremble, the one who makes kingdoms rise and fall throughout history, he can look at our weakness, he can look at our smallness and say, I commend you. I see you. And your faithfulness shines more than any of the others. You see, this is the opposite of what our culture celebrates. And that's why he needed to comfort them with this word. This is the opposite of what our culture celebrates. We've been wired from the world that we live in. We're wired to praise the beautiful and the powerful, to lift up the skilled and the rich. I mean, just scroll through your favorite influencers, through your top reality shows, and that's, those are the things that you'll see celebrated. And it's not that we can't praise the powerful and beautiful in, in a certain proper context, but the problem is that due to the influence of the world, we find ourselves praising just that. And we just stop there. They're the only things that we're taught to celebrate, and then we end up missing what Jesus actually notices, what he actually commends, what he honors and values. You see, Jesus, he loves, values, and honors the weak, not in spite of how great he is, but because of it. I want you to look at the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 9, it says, Paul is speaking, and he says, but he, speaking of God, said to me, this is Paul, God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power, God's power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, God's power is made whole. It's made fulfilling. It's made complete in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I'm going to boast all the more gladly, all the more joyfully of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, some of us think that our smallness and our weakness is what gets in the way of what God would do. Some of us think that it's because we're so jacked up, because we messed up the other night, because of the thoughts that ran through our head earlier today. We think that it's because of our weakness that God, we get in the way of what God would want to do through us. But no, it's actually our delusions of strength that get in the way. You see, the way this thing works is that the moment you convince yourself that you are strong and able, that you are wise and righteous, that is the moment that you're going to stop seeking the grace that can only be found in him. It's the moment that you're going to stop see, seeking or seeing your need for him. The moment you're going to stop depending on him. You ever wonder why we do a prayer of confession at the beginning of every service? I mean, some of us might think like, man, why don't we do this like every single week? This gets old. No, it doesn't. 
we need to be reminded of our brokenness, of our great need for his great grace every single time. We can never exhaust our neediness of his grace. Jesus loves the church in Philadelphia, not because they're perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect church, but because they are honest about their weaknesses. And they also don't claim any any power or superiority. The world teaches us to compensate for our weaknesses or to hide our weaknesses, to put on a front, to flex things that aren't really there, to impress others. But the way of the kingdom says, no, I'm going to boast in my weakness. I'm going to boast in my weakness all the more gladly so that the power of Christ, the only truly great one, may rest upon me. I want you to look at what Jesus says to those in Philadelphia who do just that. Back to Revelation 3, verse 8, he says to them, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Jesus says, look, I'm going to use my sovereign power, my great power to open a door for you. You're faithful, and I'm going to bless you for that. I'm going to open the door for you, and you will succeed in your mission. It might not look successful by out, outwardly, and it might not look successful by worldly standards, but, but you guys will be successful by mine. You see, Jesus loves to partner with people who are weak in the flesh, but strong in the spirit. He loves to partner with churches who are weak in the flesh but strong in the spirit. Those are who he wants to to move through in order to renew hearts and families and communities, impact the world. He loves to partner with those who are honest about their weaknesses, those who would look inwardly at themselves and say, yeah, that's about right, I'm jacked up. But instead of feeling despair because of it, they run to him to depend on him for strength. I want you to notice what he recognizes as specific marks of their faithfulness. In verse 8, let's read this part again. He says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. And so even though they're small and powerless, what he recognizes as marks of their faithfulness is the fact that they've kept his word and haven't denied his name. And does he say, you have a little power, but yet you're a beast in your community? Everyone knows about you? Does he say you have a little power, but you know you guys are saving thousands through these programs you're putting on? You're transforming your city? No, he says, you've just obeyed me and haven't denied me. That's it. You've obeyed me and you haven't denied me. And that makes all the difference. It makes all the difference in the eyes of Christ. Maybe a question for us to ask right now at this point is, 
What do your standards for spiritual health look like? What do your standards for spiritual health look like? And do they match the world's standards or do they match the kingdom's? How do you measure spiritual health? And does the way you measure that match the world's or the kingdom's? I've talked to some people since we planted our church. I've talked to some people who, who are like, man, look, I just look forward to the day where we've got like a lot going on, right? Like I look forward to, to the day where we have a building. That's the big thing, right? Like I look forward uh, to the day we have a building. For some reason, it seems to be people on the setup and teardown team. I don't know why. I don't know why it works that way. Like others too will be like, no, I can't wait until the day we have a building. And, and, and like, yeah, that would be cool. But that's not the standard of spiritual success. I just want us to recognize that. It, for sure, like, I, I mean, I, I think that'd be cool too. But it's not the standard for spiritual health. You know what I look forward to more? I look forward to the day that the self-centered womanizer who, who came to our church got saved and baptized and one day becomes a spiritual leader in his home with a faith legacy of God-fearing, others-serving faith that stretches down to generations to not only his grandchildren, but his great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. That's what I look forward to. Or the couple that was on the brink of divorce, asking for counseling, want to know how can God heal our marriage, and they find themselves counseling others. Or to the divorcee or the widow or the widower who was heartbroken when they came to our church but found strength in the gospel that they're now able to point others to. Or the person who was plagued by debilitating anxiety starts leading others in what it looks like to be strong and brave in Christ. And I care about those things more than I do about a building to keep our stuff in. I was thinking when I wrote down this point this week that, man, the persecuted church in Afghanistan, which, you know, we've been praying for as a church, the persecuted church in Afghanistan right now, they've been removed from their buildings. They've got no place to meet on Sundays. They have to meet underground and in secret on the Lord's Day. And they're small in number, but in terms of spiritual strength, many of these house churches tower over even the biggest mega churches in our land. Again, we got to ask, like, what is it that Jesus commends? What is it that he admires, that he wants to see? And he commends the church in Philadelphia because they have kept his word. In other words, they're people of the scriptures. They're people who read the scriptures, studied it, and sought to conform their lives to what the word says. And he says they did not deny his name. This means that when the powers of culture, 
maybe tempted them to give up the kingdom and exchange it for the comforts of the world, they didn't. They didn't go there. In other words, the two marks of faithfulness that Jesus commends is that this is a church that conforms to the scripture and just doesn't conform to the world. That's what a faithful church is. You conform to the scriptures and you don't conform to the world by the grace of God. This leads us into number three. I want us to remember that Jesus promises victory for the faithful. It's not always going to be hard. It's not always going to be bad for the faithful. Even the underground of the church that was recently forced to be underground and hidden in Afghanistan right now, they need to be reminded that Jesus promises victory for the faithful. And he says that to Philadelphia in verse 9 when he says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but they lie. Now, really quick, what, what happened is that at this time that Jesus is writing this, there were Jews who were persecuting the Christians. Now remember, Jesus was born as a Jew. He came to bring the gospel to the Jews, and there were some Jews who were persecuting these new Christians and kicking them out of their communities, not just in the synagogues, but also in their neighborhoods, kicking them out because these Christians were saying, Jesus is Messiah. And these Jews were like, no, he's not, and they'd kick him out. And look, to some degree, that same thing happens today. Not exactly, but in principle. You might not be getting kicked out of synagogues, but when you live your life in allegiance to Jesus, when you confess his name as Lord, you will find yourself in social situations where people are not going to like that. Right? Some of us like to flaunt that we love to play that card, but really like we're just kind of, we're just kind of, Jerks all the time, right? But I mean, some of us are really genuinely trying to be gracious and nice and prayerful, but regardless, because of your allegiance to Jesus, because you confess his name, you're going to find yourself in social situations where people are like offended by that. They're not going to like that. And then you're going to have to decide when that happens if you want to deny Jesus just to save face or to choose to willingly lose favor with these people and gain the favor of the Lord. You see, Jesus, he looks at this group who seemed weak and powerless. They were getting persecuted. They were getting criticized. They were getting kicked out of their communities. They likely were even getting criticized by other churches who were more impressive on the outside. And Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, no, you seem weak and you seem powerless, but in my eyes, man, you're great. You're great just the way that you are. And I have plans to use your weakness not in spite of how great I am, but because of it. And though you are weak, I will be strong through you. 
and you won't get any of the glory of that. My Father in heaven will. That's what Jesus says to us. You see, I sometimes think that these last two years who, man, have been like some of the hardest two years of my life. Definitely the hardest two years of ministry. Um, the hardest two years of just even relationships. Um, backbiting of difficulties. Um, people just fall off the face of the planet. Uh, ministry got hard. Leading a church was really hard. But a lot of times, just sit and think about how these last two years have just been a gift to the church. And not just our church, but just like the church at large. I think they've been a gift to the church because it, it really exposed our neediness. I think a lot of us, we, we, we prayed when the world shut down more than we ever had before. We sought answers and, and, and asked like, how do I live as a faithful Christian in this cultural moment? We started asking questions like that more than we ever had before. And I think that's because in these last two years when our worlds were disrupted and our jobs were disrupted, we were just kind of forced to ask questions like, what's the point of all this? What am I here for? What's my purpose in all this? Man, my challenge to you this afternoon would be, don't start ignoring those questions now. Things are opening up. They're kind of started to go back to normal, but, but we're just as needy and dependent on the Lord today than we were a year and a half ago. And the invitation from Jesus to us through this passage of Scripture is for us to see our weakness and to not only see our weakness, but see it as something that he celebrates. And so we don't hide our weakness. We actually boast in it. And in Revelation 3, verse 9 and 10, Jesus continues his address and he says, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. He's talking about the synagogue of Satan. Uh, he says, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. What happened is that for these Christians, they may have felt like a failure because they were unliked by others who found their Christianity offensive. But they were commended by Jesus here. And again, like what we believe as Christians, what we believe by nature is offensive because the gospel does include a call to repentance, right? The gospel includes a call to die to yourself and to say, look, the old me is dead and now I live for Christ. 
And so no matter how well you love your neighbors and no matter how well you serve others and stuff, at some point when they find out that the, at the core of what you believe is this repent of your old ways and walk, uh, rise to walk in newness of life, some people are going to find themselves drawn to the gospel because of the spirit of God at work in their hearts. But some people are going to find them repelled by that. You're going to find that offensive because they'll see you now saying, like, that means that when, when I work as a Christian, that I'm doing it for the glory of God. And when I enjoy a drink, I'm not doing it to get drunk, but I'm drinking to the glory of God and with thankfulness in my heart. When I love others, I'm doing it for Jesus. The reason I make time for this gathering of my church family every Lord's Day and have to say no to you is because I belong to Jesus. And some people are not going to understand that. Some people are going to find that offensive. Right now, as I'm saying that, you might be here thinking that's kind of offensive. But this is what Christianity, according to the scriptures, look like. And some of you are going to be tempted to form a different kind of Christianity. Because you're getting persecuted, because people don't understand you, because of the pressures of the culture, some of you in this room right now are going to find yourself tempted to form a different kind of Christianity that is not a product of the Bible, but actually is a product of the culture. Like this diet version of Christianity where the whole Jesus, the big Jesus, the complete and full Jesus isn't really talked about where the Bible isn't really open and studied, where sin isn't really called out, and where repentance never really happens. And the truth is, is that for the last 2,000 years, the church has always been under pressure to deny the Bible and to deny Jesus. But to those who have kept his word, and to those who have patiently endured, as verse 10 says, Jesus is going to make others bow before you, and they will know that Jesus loves you. There will come a day at the end of all time, at the final judgment, where you will be vindicated, where everyone who talked behind your back, everyone who thought you were dumb and stupid and silly for believing these things, everyone who didn't get why your priorities suddenly looked different than theirs because of your allegiance to Jesus, they're going to find themselves falling into their faces at the end, at the final judgment, saying, man, you were right. You were right. We see how great Jesus is now, and man, I didn't realize he is worth it. And I get that now. They're going to see, Jesus says, that he has loved us. And that right there, the love of Jesus, is everything to us. It's everything to us. That Jesus loves us. Do you believe that? Do you, do you know that? And I'm not talking about like, do you know the theological arguments for the love of God, which those things have their place, but, but do you know that to the point to where you're just moved to be grateful? Where you just wake up in the morning and you're like, Jesus saved me from my sin, 
Man, I'm so great. I want my day to be spent in gratefulness and gladness to him. Do you know, like truly know, in fullness know, the love of God towards you in Jesus? Jesus is not just a great king. He is also, the Bible says, like a faithful husband who is so devoted to his bride, the church, that he lays down his life for her, dies for her, literally gives himself up for her. Do you know why the church has survived for the last 2,000 years? Why it's gone and, and grown to different continents now, even in spite of persecution? Do you know why the church grows, why it continues? It's because Jesus loves the church. It's the love of Christ. And the love of Christ is enough to keep us enduring. Even in the face of any hate or shade that people are throwing at us, the love of Christ is enough to keep us enduring until we finally see and realize the final unveiled victory. This leads us to our last point, point number four. I want you to rest knowing that Jesus promises glory for the faithful. Rest knowing Jesus promises glory for the faithful. Read verse 11 and 12 with me. Jesus says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. In the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Now, what he's saying in these two verses is nothing short of brilliant. And for you to see that, it's helpful to know some context for the church in Philadelphia. You see, the city of Philadelphia back then is that it, it, it sat on the edge of an active, like, volcano area. Now, why does that matter? It's because that tells us that its location was both a blessing and a curse. Because on the one hand, that means that the, rich, uh, that the soil was rich and fertile. It means that it had hot springs, uh, which made it a great destination spot. But on the other hand, there was the constant danger of earthquakes because of it. Whenever an earthquake struck, people in Philadelphia would have to leave the city, depending on how bad it was, until the tremors and the aftershocks just subsided. And so there was always, in Philadelphia, there was always going out and coming in because, because the city just was always shaky. It didn't feel like it had a good foundation. People were always going out and coming in, going out and coming in. And man, if that's your life in the city of Philadelphia, that's, that's a restless culture, right? Can you imagine that? You've got no cars, you've got no buses or trains or airplanes. This is the first century, right? Like, the year hasn't even hit triple digits yet. And you're always going out and coming in that makes you restless. And Jesus knows that about Philadelphia. He knows that about them. And so he says to them in verse 12, look, I'm your unshakable foundation. And all of your going and coming and all of your fleeing and returning, with me, things will never change. You'll never have to come and go. 
I remain the same. I'm the one who's holy and true. My presence with you, my love for you, my faithfulness to you in the midst of your weakness and powerlessness, my presence with you will never be changed or thwarted by anything, whether it's a geological disaster, economic turmoil, political disorder. Jesus says to this church, I'm never going to change for you. I'll always be there. Isn't that brilliant, the way that Jesus just addresses them? So do the weak and powerless who boast in their weakness, Christ says, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You're never going to have to leave and come. No, you're, I'm going to be the sturdy foundation, and you're going to be a pillar in this temple. In other words, they're going to be the ones who keep, help keep the whole thing together. This church, this small church, this unimpressive church, Jesus tells them, you're going to be a pillar. You're going to help me keep this whole thing together. And so Jesus pleads with them, don't reach for worldly influence and power. Don't reach for worldly things and trade in your kingdom power. He says, no, I'm going to write on you the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. In other words, the benefits of Jesus are going to be fully shared with us. He's calling us to press into our weakness, to stand as a pillar in the kingdom. Jesus is somebody who doesn't pity us in our weakness. No, he sees us partners in his mission through our weakness. And here's what's amazing about this address to the city in Philly. Is that the last city to fall in this ancient region was Philadelphia. All the other cities had fallen. Many of the churches in those cities had given up and fled. Some were martyred and persecuted. And the very last place to fall, the very last church to fall, was the one in Philadelphia. The church there refused to compromise. They refused to abandon the word and to deny Jesus. And it lasted, their impact lasted in Philadelphia for 1,200 more years until its final members were eventually murdered and martyred for their faith. And when that happened 1,200 years later by worldly standards, people would look at that as a failure. People would look at that as the end. But their example hundreds of years ago, has emboldened underground churches in that region and throughout the world for centuries since. And in the kingdom of God, Jesus says they are pillars on display. One day, by the grace of God, you and I will celebrate the faithfulness of this church in the ancient Philadelphia. And by the grace of God, we'll be counted among them. Not because we're huge, because we're not. Not because we're impressive, 
because we're not. Not because any of us are famous, because we're not, but because we have kept the words of Jesus and have not denied his name. And so we pray. We pray for that open door of opportunity that through our dependence on King Jesus, he would be strong through us. And that through his work in us, more and more people would come to meet him, would come to know him, would come to love him and worship him as God, and would join us in making disciples who make disciples for generation after generation. Let's pray for that. Amen. As he has with all the other verse, uh, passages, he ends this passage, verse 13, by saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.